My name is Danny Smith. Uh, what I do full time is I'm a journalist and author. Independent uh, is how I work, so I don't work specifically for any news organization. Um, I grew up in uh, the northwest side of Chicago in a single parent household. I uh, went to St. Patrick High School. One of the things that uh, was stressed at St. Uh, Patrick, the Christian Brothers run that high school. Uh, and one of the things about the Christian Brothers uh, and their, kind of their tradition is that uh, they're, it's a very practical education. And uh, one of the rallying cries of the Christian Brothers back, uh, they're actually nearing their 150th year in Chicago right now. Um, St. Pat's uh, itself is nearing its 150th year. Uh, when it was founded, Lincoln had only been president for three months. So kind of a unique thing, but they have a long history here in Chicago. Uh, and one of the rallying cries throughout that 150 years uh, has been to prepare uh, young men specifically for the battle of life. That's what they called it. Um, and one of the components of that was vocation and a sense of vocation. And so often I think that gets lumped up with the priesthood or the brotherhood or some kind of religious order. Um, but there in you know, late uh, 20th century uh, at St. Pat's, vocation was just as much about having a purpose with what you do in life. Um, and I actually started out as a teacher. Uh, high school teacher on the Western Burbs. Now, for a kid who grew up on the northwest side of Chicago, never owned a car till I was 23 years old, being shipped out to the far western suburbs uh, and a large, large public high school was a very unique world for me. And I thought that was my vocation, but after a quick year of doing it, I realized this is not what I, I feel like my vocation is and where I feel I'm best suited. And I was brought back to something that uh, my mentor had said when I was in college. I, Although I'm a full-time journalist, I actually majored in English education, um, and I'll never use my college degree again, um, but I'm a practicing journalist. But uh, the guy who was my mentor was a 30-year veteran of the Chicago Tribune, and I remember asking him in my last year of college if he would write my letter of recommendation for me uh, for, to apply for teaching jobs. And he looked at me flat out and he said, Danny, why do you want to be a teacher? Um, and his opening line of my letter of recommendations uh, as I was applying for teaching jobs was, I resentfully write this letter on behalf of Danny Smith. He's a writer, not a teacher. Uh, so as much as fulfilling my own vacation as his mission, and I think following where my heart and where I felt I was led, I became a writer. Uh, and I went the starving artist route, which scared the heck out of my Irish Catholic mother. Uh, but certainly uh, filled me with a lot of great things. So these days I write about uh, things, most, some of my stuff you might read. I mean, I, I write for the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, and it's an assortment of papers. So there's some things where maybe you'll see my nice byline, Daniel P. Smith, but the vast majority of what I write you folks will never see, unless you're in the restaurant business, unless you're in real estate or hospitality. Um, you'll never read a lot of that stuff. But one of the things that uh, I always bring to my work is about, you know, how can we kind of, because I do a lot of business journalism, and it's really about how we can blend, uh, you know, ethical, you know, so, so many times we, we distinguish between ethics and business, but those two really mesh. And I think Jeff's series, has, uh, I came to it uh, last year as well, really blends those two together. But my most ambitious project to date, and certainly the one I'm most proud of, uh, one of the cardinal rules of writing is to write what you know. And when I left teaching in June 2004, the school year ended, and I said, I'm going to be a writer. Um, and one of the cardinal rules of writing is to write what you know. And so I sat in my office um, out in the western suburbs where I was living at the time, and I started writing about growing up in a Chicago police family. So I grew up Irish Catholic in the city. There was only so many professions open to me. I mean, it was a cop, electrician, fireman, uh, and again, I became the starving artist route. But growing up in a Chicago police family really gave 
some insight to me. Uh, two of my three uh, great uncles were Chicago police officers. Two of my three uncles, my father was, my brother, it, my brother is. So this was really the family business and the culture I grew up around. So I sat in my office in June 2004 and I started writing about growing up in a Chicago police family and how that, that culture that I was around, the stories I was around, how that influenced my perspective of the world and a lot of the things I saw. And in the course of uh, the book came out, uh, it's called On the Job Behind the Stars of the Chicago Police Department. And it came out about two and a half years ago, and it just went to second printing, and it's, it's been a nice successful thing for me. Not financially, but a nice successful thing for me that's given me a lot of credibility and allowed me to pursue something that I love talking about, that I love working with, and uh, writing about Chicago for a kid who grew up in a bungalow is a real special thing for me. Um, but in the course of writing on the job, I went through the process of interviewing over 100 Chicago police officers, both past, uh, retired, current, the whole gamut, men, women, all different ethnicities, all different ages. Um, and I went through this process, and you know, in each, in each uh, kind of interview I did, I was trying to focus on how officers balance work and life, and how they kind of how do those two worlds kind of coexist? Because one of the things about being a police officer, specifically in the urban environment such as Chicago, where the, where the level of crime and the intensity and just the volume of crime is so high, is it really impacts, uh, police work anywhere, but specifically in that urban environment, really impacts uh, one's soul. And it really impacts one's perspective on life and how they outlook on it and how they, their outlook uh, and their relationships and their perspective on humanity and all of those things. Um, so as I go through the process of interviewing all these officers, there was one question I asked every single officer I talked with, and that was, tell me about a day that defines your career. And there's one officer I'll talk about right now. His name is John O'Shea. He actually doesn't live too far from here, and I interviewed him over on the northwest side. Um, John was a 30-some-year uh, veteran of the Chicago Police Department. The day he retired from the Chicago Police Department at age 56, he entered the Chicago Fire Academy. Um, at age 56. So John, he's extremely full of life, extremely animated, and extremely vigorous. Uh, and has a lot of vitality and, and very animated and just an all-around great guy. My favorite Chicagoan ever. Of course, I never got to meet Mike Royko. So John is his replacement. Um, and I meet with John, and I go in to speak with John. John started on the Chicago Police Department in 1967. And I get led to John through my Uncle Johnny. And he says, oh, talk with John O'Shea. I was looking for an officer who was involved with the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Uh, and I wanted to talk with that individual about his experiences being down during convention week. And I'm led to John, who was a rookie officer in, 1960, uh, uh, rookie officer in 1968 when he is stationed outside of the Conrad Hilton Hotel on Michigan Avenue, which for any of you who know anything about convention week, that's ground zero for what's going on that week. And I go in, and I meet John at a diner on the northwest side, and for about 90 minutes we're talking about the 1968 Democratic National Convention. His perspective of things, how he saw things happen, how he reacted, what was directed at him, things of that nature. And then I asked John that one question I asked every single officer I chatted with, which was, tell me about a day that defines your career. And John looked at me and he said, Miracle Moon. And I said, John, what's Miracle Moon? And he said, who? And I said, who what? And he goes, who is Miracle Moon? I said, okay, John, who is Miracle Moon? And John went on to tell me about a two-year-old girl on the west side of Chicago who died three times in one week. John was a patrol officer his entire life uh, because that's where he felt he could do the most good, and that's where he felt like his heart was. And police work was 
kind of that immediacy. The further you get up the, the ranks in, in police lore, maybe Tom, if he ever talks about this openly, the further you kind of get up the ranks, you, know, you kind of lose some, some connection with, with kind of what it really means to be a cop, kind of that nuts and bolts, practical, professional thing. And John felt that he always wanted to be involved in that. But at the end of his career, he became a detective uh, in the last couple of years, which allowed him to get a little bit of a pay raise, too. Um, so in any event, John becomes a detective, and that's where he encounters Miracle Moon. As I said, she died three times in one week. Uh, she lived on the west side of Chicago, uh, uh, an area that I think we would effectively refer to as the ghetto, and I don't say that cynically. I, I think that's just how we would reference that. A very high crime area, very low income area, ridden with a lot of crime and poverty. And not an area that you or I are likely going to, not an area that certainly much of Chicago pays attention to, and in many ways, kind of a forgotten piece of the Chicago landscape. Um, but here's Miracle's story, as John relays it to me. Uh, Miracle was two years old. She had soiled herself, and she was crying. The mother's boyfriend, who was watching her at the west side apartment where they lived, uh, he got annoyed by this. He put her in the tub, and he drowned her. He pulled her out. He pumped her back to life. A few days later, same, the same exact scene repeated itself. Miracle had soiled herself, she was crying, the mother's boyfriend put her in the tub, drowned her, pulled her out and tried to pump her back to life again, but he was unsuccessful in doing so. As the mother comes home and sees this, she calls the paramedics and the paramedics respond to the scene. They bring her over to Bethany Hospital on the west side. Uh, immediately, John is assigned to this case and he goes to Bethany Hospital where the doctors and the medical team there are working to revive this little girl. They're successful in doing that. And as John says, there's not a dry eye in the house. As he's pumping, as, as the team is working to get this girl back to life, they succeed. It's a really triumphant moment for this team that they were able to bring this little girl back to life. A very powerful moment. And that's where John encounters her. She's then transferred over to Loyola University Medical Center, where she dies as a result of her injuries. Um, John goes on to tell me how that's the day that defines his career, because he was able to defend her existence. The mother's boyfriend from the get-go is the prime suspect, and he's investigating this crime, and, you know, one of the, the goals I had in my book was to kind of debunk the Hollywood stereotype a little bit. You know, we watch Law and Order, and we see the, the officer interrogating a suspect, and he's throwing stuff across the room, and he's cussing out the suspect, and John's thing was always to be the nicest guy in the room, to ask if he could get that person a sandwich, or what he wanted to drink. Uh, he was always about being very cordial and kind, and so that's when you were able to kind of create those bonds. So that was John's thing. So one of the things is, as John goes on and tells me about this story, he keeps on saying that the one thing he kept saying to this, the mother's boyfriend over and over, who again was the prime suspect, is, don't you want this little girl's life to be worth something? Don't you want her life to mean something? And this gentleman actually gave a signed and videotaped confession detailing exactly what he did and how it happened and how that situation broke down. Uh, and he was eventually convicted of that crime. I think one of the interesting things that takes place is as I'm interviewing John, the big lesson to me was a professional lesson as well as I thought a very spiritual and, and faith-filled and very practical lesson as well. You know, I go into John, uh, interview John O'Shea, and it's about the 1968 Democratic National Convention, this really monumental event in Chicago history. I mean, there's been numerous books written about one week in Chicago in 1968. And that's what I go in to talk with John about. And I allow him that opportunity. And then I ask him that question, tell me about a day that defines your career. And I think 
What I'm going to get is another 60 minutes on 1968. This marquee event in our city's history, our national history, and even international history. But then John started talking about a two-year-old girl that neither you nor I never know unless John makes a very sincere, courageous decision to communicate it to me. And I always thought that one of the things I had to learn as the journalist, as well as the person, was to let John tell his story. Not to say, no, no, John, I want to know more about 1968. The one thing I learned, and this came from my journalism mentor as well, and it sounds very cynical, but it's very practical and it's very true, which was, when the bird starts chirping, let him sing. And I let John sing. And again, it sounds cynical or it sounds manipulative, but when John started telling me about Miracle Moon, I could tell this was an event he carried with him. I could tell that this was an event that impacted his life because in 36 years of being a Chicago police officer, John saw a lot. He was in ground zero of the most defining event in arguably the Chicago Police Department history. He was right there on the front lines. But that's not the day that defines his career. It was this. And I let him proceed in telling me about that. And all I did was a very simple thing. Shut up and let him talk. And let him tell me about how this little girl's death and his research of it and his investigation of it allowed him to bring some peace to her life, make her life worth something, but bring some peace to his life as well. And subsequently, the lesson I get out of that is how important it was for me to let somebody else share their story. You know, I think about Catholic tradition is, uh, you know, you think about the Gospels, you know. All those people, you know, Mark, Luke, John, all they were were writers, and all they were were sharers of the good news. And through a large degree, I've always looked at a journalist as being the same thing. Now, I'm not a journalist in the same vein as Geraldo Rivera. What people do behind closed doors, I feel, is often their business. I'm not a huge First Amendment person uh, in terms of being kind of a, a far-reaching First Amendment person. I believe in kind of that, that credi the credibility of that, of that institution and the fourth estate being what journalism is. But at the same time, I think one of the things our job to journalists do is, is to tell people stories that ultimately can uplift, can show a better way to live, can show a better way to do business, can show a better way to, a more efficient way to do business, a more efficient way to live, things of that nature. And I felt that that was kind of the duty as the journalist. And as I sit and watch John kind of tell me the story, and I reflect on letting John tell me the story, it's often the story I get asked most about. Now, there's 19 officer stories in my book, but John is always the one I get asked about the most. And that doesn't happen unless I make the very important decision to let John tell the story. And to let that happen, to let that in, and to let that faith and, and spirit kind of move where it must. And I thought that was kind of a very important element of that. So, uh, I hope that uh, under helps kind of draw some parallels between the journalist work and the faith work. So, uh, do we have questions, right? Yes. Oh, we do. Okay. Questions. Um, Danny? Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about your faith? Um, like, uh, I, I know you said that you wanted to, you kind of feel like a mission to get a story out, but how does that, you know, inside yourself, how does that, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, and how your faith how it relates to your faith. Yeah, you know, I, I go back to faith. You know, I, I often look at faith being a very practical thing. Uh, and, it, you know, the challenge of faith is to live it out, not so much to simply believe it, but to live it out. 
Um, and part of journalism is that, you know, journalism is, is really something driven by a finished product. The finished product that you see, that you read, uh, that influences or uh, imparts some information to you. And part of the faith thing is to kind of share that in an honest, sincere, and open way. And that's, I think, where my faith kind of really drives a lot of the work I try to do. Um, if part of my faith, if, if I believe in a, good, in a greater power out there that is, is trying to drive me to be my best and to trying to drive me to, to fill my vocation, which I feel is kind of sharing stories of, of compelling human beings and, and how they deal with life's trials and tribulations, if I believe that is my duty or my vocation, then I think I have the utmost duty to do that uh, with respect for the people who are going to read it as well. So, Yes, miss? It sounds like your um, police family uh, motivated you to write. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Um, did you ever write? Well, I don't know if they motivated me to write. They motivated me not to be a criminal. <laughs> I don't know if they motivated me to write. I, you know, just to not interrupt, but very quickly, when you grow up um, in blue-collar Chicago like I did, I, I wasn't surrounded by writers. I mean, the only people who worked for the Sun-Times or Tribune delivered or sold the newspapers. And, and, I mean, my grandfather included. It's the only job he ever, he ever had his whole life was working for the Chicago Sun-Times, delivering newspapers. When he came from Ireland to the present day, so I didn't have an example of how to write. I didn't know that being a writer was an option. That's part of the thing when I go to college, I major, I, I major in education because that's the practical thing to do. And I don't know that there's another world out there. I remember going by Ernest Hemingway's house in Oak Park when I was young and thinking, well, if I want to be a writer, that must be where I have to come from, is this massive 4,000, 5,000 square foot Victorian home. I didn't know that that was really a reality. But I'm sorry, your question. No, my, well, my dad was on the job for 32 years, and he told me many, many stories that I just regret we never wrote down. And I wondered if you wrote any of those stories down that you heard from your family. Uh, certainly. You know, in my book, I don't talk about those stories specifically. Um, I do a lot of author programs. I did one last night. I do one tomorrow in Forest Park. Um, so I do a lot of speaking about my book where I run my author program. And the first story I talk about is about my father finding a six-year-old boy uh, murdered in 1977 and how that was kind of the decline of my father. My folks divorced uh, when I was three years old. And my father, my mother always traces my father's decline, which was filled with alcoholism and uh, kind of a, certainly emotional abuse. Uh, my mother always traces my father's decline to him finding that little boy murdered. Um, and so that's, uh, although I don't talk about that in my book, that, it was that story, because I kept wondering how different would my life be if that little boy never, met, never went missing and my father wasn't the one who found him. Um, that story really drove my work with On the Job in trying to understand how officers balance work and life and how those two worlds kind of coexist. Um, the last officer um, I write about in the book is a guy by the name of Mike Cummins, who used to, um, Mike wasn't native to Chicago, he, he grew up in the Midwest um, from a family, um, he was an Air Force family, so he always traveled around, and he came to Chicago to teach religion at St. Ignatius, so um, he was in academia his whole life and had given serious considerations to joining the priesthood. He had his undergraduate degrees in religious study, then he got his graduate degree in religious studies, then he started teaching in Catholic high schools, eventually being led to St. Ignatius. And he left St. Ignatius to join the Chicago Police Department. And uh, the reason Mike wanted to be a police officer is because he loved reading detective comic books as a kid. 
I mean, nothing is more naive than thinking Dick Tracy somehow equates with being a Chicago police officer. And Mike was very naive to a lot of things, and he'll tell you as much. But I talked with Mike. He's the last officer I talked to in the book, and I thought it was very important that he was that last one uh, before I actually talked with the police department chaplain, uh, Father Tom Nagel. Uh, but I talked with Mike about faith, and at the time I interviewed Mike, he's a sex crimes detective, and they see some of the nastiest stuff. Uh, and I talked with Mike, I asked him that question point blank, Mike, how do you believe in God seeing what you do? And Mike started talking about Adam and Eve, uh, and how you know, they were peaceful and happy and innocent and blissful. And then once they ate from that tree of knowledge, or that, um, once they ate from the tree, they gave it a temptation, they saw greed, and their lives forever, their lives forever changed, and they, and they were affected in a different way. And Mike went on to talk about how police work opened up his eyes to an existence that he didn't know, you know, that was out there, and how spirituality and police work kind of lined up. And I, I would imagine that would be, to a sense, uh, whether that Tom's going to address that specifically or if that's a theme of something like that, but how police work actually enhances spirituality but then the spirituality actually enhances police work, and how those two can coexist uh, very, very, very nicely. Um, one of the confessions the Chicago Police Department chaplain gave to me was how many officers come up to him and say, you know what, Father, I bet you don't believe it, but I pray every day. Um, and I think that's a closely guarded secret. Well, thank you very much, folks. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. So I hope to talk to you.